if you have a diversified cap table, not only are you getting the strength of diversity and opinion and background and experience, but all of these investors have completely different strengths and values that they add to the company. Welcome to Unlimited Partners, a podcast on partnership. I'm your host, Thomas McGannon. I'm an investor on a journey to understand what makes great partnerships. This podcast is my way of recording that process and sharing it. Today's conversation is with Tom Shea. Tom is the co-founder of Agile, a digital media company that bridges offline and online experiences. I had the opportunity to be a pre-seed investor in Tom's company. Over the last year, he and I have gotten to know each other through conversations like this. I really enjoy the opportunities that I get to catch up with Tom. He and his leadership team are just exceptionally thoughtful in everything that they do. Unlimited Partners is brought to you by Tegas. It's fair to say that I built my technology investing career on the Tegas platform. Since joining as a beta customer back in 2017, I've personally conducted hundreds of primary expert interviews, and I've read or listened to more than 10 times that many using their searchable on-demand transcript database. I simply couldn't imagine making an investment or critical business decision without consulting the knowledge that's captured in their platform. So whether you're a professional investor, corporate development executive, or just someone who's looking for expert insights, give Tegas a try by visiting tegas.com. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick break to hear from my good friend, Courtney Hope, founder of My Marketplace Builder. It, it really is the future of the world right now. Exactly how Shopify did it with the e-commerce world where people needed to go through and sell their stuff online. We're doing that with the marketplace spots. There's no limits to how you want to grow your marketplace and how do you want to do it or what your marketplace idea is. So the website is mymarketplacebuilder.com. If you have a marketplace idea, then please go check them out. Unlimited Partners is not investing advice. The host and members of Unlimited Partners may have a position in the securities discussed. Please do your own research. So please enjoy my conversation with Tom Shea, co-founder of Agile Media Group. Hey, brother. All right. How's that? Yeah, it sounds great. You sound beautiful. All right. We're in business. We are rolling. We are cooking with gas. Love it. Uh, yeah, man. I really appreciate you doing this. I've missed, we haven't been able to do our monthlies in a while and um, I've missed that. I listened to your investor call that you had last Friday while I was doing a workout this morning. And man, it sounds like you guys are doing great. Like it sounds like Q1 was strong. The setup for Q2 is awesome. Um, the sequential growth, fantastic. The brands that you guys are getting. I think the way that you've built your cap table is something of, of a weapon even. I think that there was a line in the call where you showed the list of investors for this seed round and you said, here are your co-investors. This is your network now. But yeah, man, I just, I feel like you guys have done something well from the start. And I think that the learnings that you're going through right now around customer success and really thinking through the current environment, what's important to buyers. I think there was a line in the call also of, we sell trust first and media second. Yeah, that's um, my favorite. It's great, man. So I just, I, I am genuinely excited to be an investor and a supporter of what it is that you guys are doing. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, we're obviously pretty excited to have you in our corner, especially as someone who was 
early into the rounds and our pre-seed rounds. And, you know, I think reactions to what you just said there from the start, I think our success has largely been driven by just like self-awareness and knowing what we don't know as first time founders and, and finding a way to surround ourselves with people who can fill those information gaps for us. And, you know, you talked about the cap table coming together in a strong way, like credit to brand foundry ventures for encouraging us to be patient and pretty selective. You know, they came in with the, the lead check and they said, Hey, it doesn't matter when you close this, this could be open for a year if you wanted it to. What matters is you go out and find the people that add value and you're sort of ruthless and relentless about who you let into the rounds. Because I think within a week or so of them coming in with the lead investment, we probably could have closed the rounds and it dragged out probably for, I want to say four months while we identified who the strongest folks would be to welcome into the round or invite into the round and who could fill those caps, like I mentioned earlier. So, you know, it's off to a good start. I agree. It takes a village and I'm pretty happy with the little community that we've put together so far. How did you exercise patience there? Because your time is so finite, so valuable. And I think a lot of founders look at investors as commodities. So I think that you took a little bit different approach there. Um, could you just talk about what being patient with that capital raise meant? Yeah, I completely agree, right? It's um, you got finite resources, time being probably the most finite. Where do you choose to spend it? I think part of that narrative is a function of our executive team. So, you know, I think the classic scenario is a single founder or a founder and a technical co-founder. We're a team of four. So, you know, we have different strengths, different things that we want to lean in on. And fortunately, yeah, that re- that's a lot of mouths to feed that requires probably a larger capital raise than the standard. But it also affords flexibility in situations like this where, you know, you have other folks driving the business forward while someone can be intentional and strategic about that capital raise. And to be honest, like, again, I go back to Brand Foundry, but they had good advice on this. Uh, when you think about our business, like we're selling media and technology embedded into that media. And if you closed the round quickly and you had like four folks, the seed round cap table, all you've really done is shoot yourself in the foot to a degree because what's going to matter most for getting to a successful series A round and building this business into a, a profitable business is these next 24 months. And so if you have a diversified cap table, not only are you getting the strength of diversity and opinion and background and experience, but all of these investors have completely different strengths and values that they add to the company. So obviously Brand Foundry has an incredibly impressive list of CPG investors, but you know we brought in some of the strongest, most successful folks in the QSR space because we know that a warm introduction or friendly introduction to break into something like a Pizza Hut or a Dunkin' Donuts cracks open a vertical for us that will continue to pay dividends over the long run because we're obviously pretty confident in our product's ability to add value. The hardest part is just getting that, that face time and getting that chance to give your pitch. And I think what we found is as long as we can get in front of someone, our close rate's like over 80%. So how do you optimize for building a cap table that allows you to get in front of as many of these people as possible? So I'm not going to posture that it's the right strategy for everyone, especially with a smaller team. It's sort of like, I don't know, shut up and build. 
and get like, I want this raise done as quickly as possible so I can go back to building the business, which is why people and, you know, wrote a check. So I think there's a balance. It probably depends strongly on your line of business and what you think you need over the next 24 to 36 months or whatever that next fundraise is going to be. Like, how do you optimize for success there? So I think unique scenario, but I'm happy with how we played it. I think that Agile is um, is a really cool business because there are parts of it that are are so familiar to everyone. This just is, is frankly not a particularly challenging value proposition to articulate. But the way that you're layering technology on top of it and then how you bring that into buyers and how you position the economics of what it is that you're offering. I think, I think that's what's really exciting. Would, I, you know, one thing I would love to, to kind of get, and, and maybe I got this when we first met, but, uh, but selfishly, like, I just love to hear it again. Can you kind of, can you kind of tell me the, the founding story of agile? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start at the very beginning. Um, out of undergrad, I moved to Los Angeles and, um, didn't know anyone, but got linked up with someone who went to the same undergrad university, this guy, Ryan Reed, both of us, you know, in corporate America, trying to figure out a way out. Um, and so unbeknownst to me, I was about to move to Chicago, but he and I agreed that we would do some sort of like in innovation month project where we would spend 30 days trying to figure out how we could build something that would allow us to have passive income, which right, is the dream for everyone. Something that doesn't require too much attention, but you know, helps from a cash flow perspective and you move on. So, um, as I sort of hinted there, that did not play out because within 30 days from that conversation, I was whisked away to Chicago with the company I was at at the time and in a new city where I did not know very many people, but this idea of wanting to do something on the side or finding a way to, to build something was hot on my mind. So when I had met folks in Chicago, one of which was my current co-founder, Max Flannery, um, you know, I was itching to get something done. So Max Flannery and I met through a mutual friend, you know, at an apartment party in a corner, talking a million miles a minute at each other about different business ideas. And one thing that he had seen recently was a truck in downtown Chicago that had a small little screen on it that was advertising just on a loop like United Airlines, Applebee's, you know, insert brand here. And so the Applebee's one stood out to him because we're in downtown Chicago. No, he's in downtown Chicago. And he's like, I know for a fact there's not an Applebee's within 25 miles of this city center. Like that seems like a pretty unintelligent advertisement. Maybe there's a better way to do it. So Max's idea, I had moved to Chicago to do software engineering full time. So, you know, the question became, hey, is this something you think you can hack together? you know, at least get an MVP and something we can run with. So at the same time, I had just enrolled at the University of Chicago's business school, was heavy on the entrepreneurship track. And the classic business school example is like, okay, make up a fake company. And then you're, this semester, we're going to work on it. And we'll progress it from a sales perspective, from an operations perspective, from a crisis management perspective, et cetera. So I had the good fortune of being able to combine what was originally called adjacent advertising and the MBA coursework. So the initial idea that Max and I had was trying to make those digital screens on the back of trucks more intelligent. 
So the example we would give is you got a truck going down the highway. It's got a digital screen on the back and it's time and location aware when it's serving ads. So for the five miles leading up to exit five, you know, around lunchtime, you can imagine it's advertising for that McDonald's off exit five. And then as soon as it passes the geofence um, of exit five, it's switching to advertise for whatever is off exit six. And then, you know, it's near the United Center. It's got the Bulls score in real time. It's got weather updates, you know, a real sexy, like snazzy product. And so that's something we ran with. That's probably 2018 when we started it. Ran with it for about two and a half years um, and had the good fortune of getting accepted to University of Chicago's New Venture Challenge. So for those who are unfamiliar, New Venture Challenge is like your classic or U Chicago's equivalent of a university's startup incubator. You spend a whole semester working on the project. There's a pitch event at the end in front of a bunch of VCs who give you feedback. So um, we took it through that. We got a lot of progress in that three-month span. We got um, screens on some actual trucks. We wrote the business logic to make them time and location aware. We soldered a Raspberry Pi to a GPS chip and attached it to a TV. We got some cool content of it changing ads while it was on the road. So we get to the university or the new venture challenge. Um, We get to the final round of this investor pitch event. We get absolutely dragged through the mud in the finals. And there was two pieces of feedback that the judges had. The first was the digital screens were pretty expensive from a CapEx uh, perspective. So, you know, they were damage proof. They were tamper proof. They adjusted brightness so that they wouldn't reflect the sun into the driver's eyes. There's all sorts of legal complexities with digital screens, et cetera. And the judge feedback was like, hey, listen, there's some, there might be something here. Obviously, it's a pretty expensive business to just test if there's something here because you're going to need millions of dollars to get these screens on trucks. You know, you could, you could still accomplish that. You could do sale leasebacks, you know, financial engineering. But the more fundamental issue with the business was around marketing dollars. And Max, neither Max nor myself came from a marketing or trucking background for that matter. And so it was just straight ignorance that we did not know this. So we thought that this truck that we got a screen on that was going from Chicago, Illinois to Savannah, Georgia, back and forth all day. On day one, we'd be able to go to McDonald's and say, hey, there's 57 McDonald's franchises off these exits on this route. Let us start advertising for them. Things that we did not know about franchise businesses. Media dollars get allocated at the national, regional, and local level. So we were staring down a situation where if we wanted that dream scenario to come through, we would have to sell into every single individual franchise owner until we hit nationwide scale. So now you're facing down not only an expensive business to test, but one that's incredibly fragmented from the um, demand side of the equation. And so it was great feedback. Um, we weren't happy with it at the time, but once you uh, sort of digested it, you realize that, you know, these people have your best interest in mind. You should listen to them and think through that advice and sort of acknowledge that you don't know anything about either of these spaces, at least at this point in your career. So that is, that was original. That was, that was uh, adjacent advertising. We took that feedback and said, okay, there were two issues that they brought up. One, these trucks are traversing multiple markets. So to get media dollars 
um, it's going to be tricky. So we decided, okay, scrap the whole over the road truck, 53 footer idea. We're only doing last mile trucks traveling in the densest, most urban areas because then you could vie for regional budget. So in that example of McDonald's, let's say we're only operating in New York with these last mile, like Amazon style delivery trucks. Well, you know, you can vie for those co-op dollars for the entire like New York association of McDonald's. And that's a much easier sell. So that solved the like media dollars issue, at least at the, for the franchises specifically. And then the other um, part of the equation was the CapEx. We said, okay, these people just want to see that we can sell advertisements. So why don't we just do something very simple? We'll get rid of digital screens and we'll do just static vinyl, like a glorified sticker on the side of these vehicles. Obviously a bit more involved than that, but you know, how can we dumb it down and simplify it? And so that's what we did. And in doing so, we leaned really hard on the technology piece because we realized there was nothing new or innovative about our business if we were just doing truck wraps. And admittedly, I think we just sort of stayed in the ring long enough to walk headfirst into a problem because once we solved for attribution, so that being who saw these branded last mile vehicles and then made a conversion or had a conversion event, which is visiting a brick and mortar store, visiting e-com website, buying something on an e-com website or downloading a mobile app. We found that we could reduce the cost to acquire customers relative to paid social and paid search. And so that was like the aha moment. Um, and we realized that all this crazy technology and screen stuff that we were doing was sort of a, probably too too much too soon. And the actual problem we needed to solve for was these brands that are obsessing over trying to reduce the cost to acquire a customer. And honestly, I'd love to pretend this was part of the plan, but you know, iOS 14.5 hit, cookie-less future, brands started shifting budget away from digital, which has traditionally been like 92% plus of total media spends. And um, we sort of had that boost uh, as we were coming to market at the end of the pandemic. So that is the long-winded, uh, windy path of entrepreneurship for us. We're in year four, but admittedly, with the new business model, probably about 15 months in so far. So when you realized that you guys needed to shift some of the technology focus from the trucks to the software, the data pipeline, the attribution, could you talk about like what were the tools that were available for you to use? Were there any established kind of best practices to articulate what it was that you were delivering to the advertisers. I think that building software solutions and kind of making some of those almost like platform uh, decisions are real important. I just love to hear how you guys thought of that. Yeah. I mean, admittedly the modern day software person looks a lot like what a plumber used to look like where there's a lot of different tools and pipes at your disposal and your function is to connect them in a way that, makes the object work correctly. So when we were thinking about how to make the product more intelligent and actually have this sort of backend attribution tech stack, obviously we did a lot of due diligence on different vendors. It was a pretty long, drawn-out exploratory process. I think what accelerated it was really just you know networking and getting into the scene um, to see what other folks were leveraging. And don't get me wrong, like 
it took a few tries. Where we landed was not where we started on the attribution side. <laughs> I'll save you the story there, but there was a lot of starts and stops in that process. In terms of trying to develop something that worked well, though, I think you had to sort of do some sort of consumer discovery, figure out what people were actually looking for in the market. And if you look at out of home and physical world advertising in general, like it's always been a, I hope this works narrative. You know, sometimes it's ego driven. Sometimes it is, you know, someone's trying to take a performance lens and they're hacking together all sorts of unique ways to try to back into attribution, like a coupon code or a QR code or a dedicated link. But not all of those are robust ways to measure out of home because like you see something on the subway ad, maybe you didn't scan the QR code and it resonated with you. So you looked it up and you clicked a, a paid search or an organic search link for that brand. Well, you know, part of that conversion story is that out of home exposure, but it's something that there's just a lot of loss and it's not as uh, crystal clear that you drove that conversion. So regard, so taking, I guess, a step deeper here into what we had to solve for in particular, once we had this technology and, you know, had all these great partners and vendors that we felt were going to help us bring this to life. The thing we had to solve for was it's a cool narrative to say someone saw a, I don't know, Chipotle branded last mile delivery truck and then visited a Chipotle. But that's a bit too like one dimensional of an attribution story because Chipotle spending on connected TV commercials, on PR, on paid social, on paid search. So how could Agile Media Group say that they can take credit for that conversion? You can't. Like it's a blended conversion story. So, you know, having a bit of statistical background, we were trying to figure out how best to isolate what was incrementally driven from a conversion perspective by their media investment in Agile, by wrapping these last mile delivery trucks. So the way we developed that is how you would sort of any scientific study. You have a hypothesis group and you have a control group. And the hypothesis group in this context is those, you know, individuals, mobile phones captured around the branded last mile vehicle using some geofencing technology. And now you have, you know, that exposed group hypothesis group. And then the control group was built by rerunning the truck's GPS information on a 10 minute delay. And what that allowed us to do is create a ghost truck that was, you know, only exists in a virtual environment but is lagging behind that branded vehicle by 10 minutes at any given point in its route. And around that ghost truck, we're doing the same thing. We're geofencing, capturing a population of folks who have been unexposed to that advertisement. And then we track the difference in their conversion behavior between that hypothesis and control group. Because you know that and the only difference is that truck side exposure. So now we're looking at, okay, in the hypothesis group, a thousand people entered, entered a Chipotle brick and mortar location and only 500 in the control group visited a Chipotle brick and mortar location that allows you with statistical rigor to say that your media investment with agile netted 500 incremental visits to a Chipotle location. And then obviously they have the back end information to say, what is that worth to them? Was this campaign accretive? Did it convert individuals at a higher rate than our other paid media investment channels? 
That's a really compelling narrative that you guys have have assembled. But I think I think a lot of times you find that like on paper, the compelling narrative, um, it might not actually land into a selling motion the way that you expect. Could you talk a little bit about like, who is your customer? Who is your buyer? Like, how do you approach the person who's connected to the decision that allocates the resources? I think you guys on your call uh, last week, you talked about the importance of of identifying your uh, your champion within an organization and then um, developing relationships with that person, obviously, but kind of giving them a hug within their their uh, colleague group, because a lot of the businesses that you're working with, they have high turnover. People are taking new jobs. This is the great resignation. And so right. I just hear like, how do you diagram who your customer is? Find that champion add supporters around them, make sure that you're delivering agile in a way that's actually going to be consumable to uh, media dollars? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. And honestly, I think it's something, again, you know, so much of this is just you learn as you go, I think. But I think originally our thought process was, okay, that whole narrative where you have to sell into all these individual franchise owners and this fragmentation of media dollars is a nightmare. So how do you find a demand side aggregator? And in our mind, when we were coming to market, it was always the ad agencies, you know, the people that control all of the budget for these fortune 500s. Um, there's like four major holding companies and then a bunch of agencies below them. And those are the folks that, you know, you keep one attached to the hip and you have a bunch of different campaigns that they represent or clients that they represent and therefore campaigns that they can run with your product. What we learned once we went to market was, okay, well, we launched in New York. No offense, but I don't care about your thirty to fifty thousand dollar buy because if I'm buying on behalf of one of these giant companies, like you, you become a distraction at a certain point. Even if your product is cooler or better or more effective, as the media buyer, like I don't want to have to manage you know, if I'm doing a 50 state execution and I have to daisy chain all these individual providers or vendors in order to get a campaign off the ground, it becomes too much of a burden for them to run. So the first thing we learned was you needed nationwide scale, but the ability to execute locally in order to progress the narrative within the agency world. So I think that was something that we learned once we got more into it. And to your point, it sort of showed us who our champion would be and what we picked on picked up on very quickly and then built a strategy around was this idea of the fellow founder sale so who cares most about cost of customer acquisition like you know this thing that we've brought to the physical world and thing the thing that everyone is used to seeing on digital advertising well it's people who are you know in the exact same position as we are they raised around the they're being measured month over month, quarter over quarter on performance, they're trying to figure out a way to increase that gross margin, reduce costs and do something unique and creative that no one else is doing. So we sort of once we realized that this that type of sale was resonating with these like younger D to C CPG brands, we leaned really heavy into it. And we didn't forget about the agencies, but it informed a new way to get the agency's attention while we were building scale. And what I mean by that is, if you look at the history of any other media channel, influencer marketing, podcast marketing, the story that plays out is 
the challenger brands do, did something innovative and unique and were the first movers on these new advertising channels. And then inevitably over time, the Fortune 500s look around at these challenger brands eating market share from them and they go, what are these brands doing differently? Can we replicate it or do we need to just buy them? And in both of those instances, podcast marketing, influencer marketing, they end up eventually jumping into the mix or jumping into that advertising medium. And then they flood it with their, you know, they flex that giant ad, ad budget that they have and they box out the challenger brands from being able to even play in that space. Like, I don't know about you, but I was listening to a podcast earlier today and McDonald's is now the, the advertising bit at the beginning of the, the advertise or the podcast. And that's a crazy realization, but also something that reaffirms my belief that if we can make a strong base with the people that actually really care about the tech and the data, what will eventually happen is we'll be able to attract the larger clients who are getting tired of watching their market share being eaten away. And admittedly, those people probably don't even care about the cool data and tech that we're doing because they're never going to let us put pixels on their website because they're publicly traded and it would be dangerous for them to expose that information to us. So I think it was a long evolution of trying to find who our hero or champion is, but we found the sweet spot. And what's really nice about the Founder Network is it's so tight. And when you do something with one person and you try to sell someone else, the first thing they do is they call up that founder and say, hey, how did this work for you? And that goes back to my statement that you sell trust first, media second. So I think we've done a really good job nurturing trust with all of these younger CPG brands such that when someone does make that call, you can almost guarantee that someone's going to vouch for you or go to bat because we've always done the right thing as you've been growing this business to maintain trust, even if it requires you know going the extra mile or potentially losing money on a campaign or something like that. Because the LTV, if you maintain trust, you know, in this community is going to be much higher than if you force a sale or you don't do the right thing by, you know, the people that entrusted you with their media budget. Yeah, I can appreciate why you might not want to go into details on, on what you guys have specifically done going that extra mile, making sure that every customer is, is having a positive experience. Even if that means, you know, redoing some work, I, I just like want to flag and say, I've seen you guys actually do that. I've participated in the conversations around the costs and benefits. And um, it's really exciting to see just in a short period of time, as you kind of put that good stuff out into the universe, like it's, it's coming back to you in dividends. So how have you guys thought about, about pricing? Like I remember in one of our early conversations, you were saying like, I think that we can charge a lot more money than we have to date. And I'm imagining like you've kind of been on a bit of a journey figuring that out. I think one of the, the conversations that I've heard most often with early stage companies is that pricing is really a difficult concept to, to figure out. A lot of uh, people that mentor will say, the first thing I tell a, a technical founder is double your price because I don't care what your uh, charging. You've likely gotten to that number by walking up your costs and then putting some arbitrary margin assumption that's probably conservative. And at the end of the day, if your product is really effective, you should be able to command 
pricing that is really high margin. I mean, that's what makes these digitally enabled businesses so high quality. Yeah. And I'll say off the bat, uh, we're still figuring that out, if I'm being completely honest, but you're absolutely right. I think the inexperience led us to entering the space with penetration pricing. And the risk you run with that, and I, probably the reason everyone gives that advice to like <laughs> double your cost right now, is you risk A, anchoring the market at a certain price point. And relative to the other options in the market, and we, you know, we could use billboards or bus sides, such a good example, like it's almost one-to-one comparable. If you come in at a much lower price, you're signaling something to the market about the quality of your product if you're not careful. But at a certain point, I think you need to flip the switch as you achieve product market fit and hit a critical mass of industry education about what you're bringing to market where you do have to change that pricing structure. So, you know, I I think whoever's giving out that advice to double the cost of your product immediately, probably good advice and worth testing where that upper bound is. We haven't had anyone back out because they said this is too expensive. And I think you should be looking for someone to say that, if we're being honest. You should be trying to figure out where that upper bound is, taking that information, not reacting too strongly when it's just one data point. You mentioned that a lot of times you're being benchmarked against uh, social media advertising. There's been a tremendous amount of, I don't even know, maybe it's even chaos. Like That might be too strong of a word to use, but (laughs) this is talked about last summer when I said, Tom, what I really like about your business is I, I think that as we go towards this cookie-less future, as we have a much different approach to privacy and responsibilities that that Apple and, and Google and other large um, tech incumbents are kind of being forced to, to embrace, it was very clear from like my public markets work that there were big changes coming uh, to the online advertising market. And I think that as we've seen earnings roll through over the last couple of weeks, like that is definitely the case. We're hearing lots and lots of conversation about costs of acquiring customers increasing significantly. How are you guys counter positioning? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on this topic. I think the first thing my reaction is what I see happen in our little niche here out of home is sometimes we're selling against each other. And what really needs to be happen is a united front to increase the size of the pie that goes to out of home. And the time's right for that for all the reasons you just mentioned. So iOS 14.5, pretty much, and I guess maybe a quick tech primer for the audience here. What's happening is when you were served an ad on Facebook, what they used to be able to do pre-iOS 14.5 is when you clicked on that advertisement for Under Armour, Facebook could see what you did once you got to the Under Armour website. So they served an ad to Tom Shea, white male, 24 to 35, X income. They decided to give me that ad. I click on it. I make a purchase. Facebook goes, that ad worked. Let's push this ad to more people that look exactly like Tom Shea from a demographic and behavioral perspective. Post iOS 14.5, as soon as someone clicks on that ad, it becomes a full black box for Facebook's algorithm. They don't know what happens, what I do, if I convert or if I walk away or you know leave the website immediately. That becomes an unknown. And the reason that's so important and the reason it's capturing so many headlines is, you know, Under Armour and Facebook will probably figure out how to solve that. They'll make like an information pipeline. 
Um, and you know, they'll get hashed IP addresses or email addresses and just link them up to say, okay, this worked, this didn't. But now Facebook's algorithm has these blind spots where it doesn't know how to self-optimize, which is, you know, an ad supported business that's going to damage the effectiveness of their algorithms. And the other really damaging part is the majority of ad spend on platforms like Facebook and some of these other juggernauts. It's small and medium sized businesses who will never have the technology to be able to bridge that information pipeline or that, that information gap. So when you have, let's say like in Facebook's case, 70% of ad revenue coming from people like my dad, honestly, who, you know, runs a small business and is never going to be able to figure out how to link up attribution technology, it's going to really affect those businesses. And so that narrative pretty much brings us back to the return of contextual advertising. So instead of, you know, Forbes, probably, you know, if I'm visiting Forbes and I like watches, they're going to serve a watch to me when I visit Forbes. But if you, if you're visiting Forbes and they know you don't, you're not someone who over indexes to watches, they won't serve you that watch ad. But now when you go to Forbes, all that watch company can do is say, Hey, like we can't one-to-one target like we used to. So instead of serving an ad only to Tom, we're going to take a bet and just advertise on Forbes because we know the highest percentage of people who visit Forbes are people that fit our demographic and our watch. And so you introduce all of this loss back into the equation and you're back to contextual marketing. It's just, I think this is where our customer will be. So this is where we'll put our chips and you can't do that one-to-one anymore. Well, if you think about the original form of contextual marketing, it's, it's out of home. It's placing a bet on a market or a specific area of a given market because you think that's where your customer is. And so now that there's been this seismic shift that evens the playing fields from a capability and technology and targeting perspective, there's a strong business case for the pendulum swinging backwards and out of home's favor. And that's why you see it growing at like 11% year over year right now. And as much as it's an out of home getting more advanced and technologically forward, um, it's also just a function of what's happening to the other components of the market like digital, which, you know, was commanding such a large percent of those media dollars. And so there is definitely a little bit of a, a changing of the guard and an evening of the playing fields. And, you know, those are market dynamics. Obviously there's some other components to the story, but it's, it's one that really favors our business. That's, that's really cool. That's really interesting. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's, 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 um, it's not often that from a data perspective, um, we have to walk towards a future where we have less than what we used to have. I mean, Moore's law is is about, (laughs) is about having more, uh, the data growth, it has, has been only in one direction. And so it's been fascinating to see how the industry has responded to and when I say industry, like, I mean, it's, it's really the, the economy We're we're obviously walking through a tenuous kind of macroeconomic uh, situation, 
But I, I definitely think that the the way that we are reconfiguring our some of the thoughts and processes around around data that ends up kind of opening up a more diverse uh, competitive field set. So it's just like it's a this is this is not checks chess. This is like go in the sense of how many kind of dimensions that you have to consider. One of the stories that you guys shared recently, I thought was really cool. You saw that a customer that you had been courting had advertised with one of your competitors. But their their trucks were like way outside the the MSA, like way out way out in the uh, of Long Island. And you're like, yeah, that's not what you should be buying. You're not going to get the ROI by being out in those hinterlands. Let us give you a, a campaign that's Midtown Manhattan. Let's really drive an A plus offering, and you can compare that to what you're currently getting. And I thought that that was a really cool reflection of the work that you guys have done on the supply side. I'd love to hear you just, and I know that a lot of this could be like competitively sensitive. So like definitely don't go into the thing that you're uh, thinking is part of your secret sauce. But uh, I think that your access to low cost advantaged inputs in this business model and, and to the extent that there are finite inputs in certain regions and that you guys can, can secure that is really important. So talk to me about trucks. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you're, Absolutely right that I think a lot of the trade secrets are embedded in this conversation. So just went through media training with our PR team. I will dance around to the sensitive parts and, and still hopefully deliver something that's interesting here. But um, yeah, so I, you know, the part that's not a secret is the things that retain value in the out-of-home space is the quality of the inventory and the service that you provide. So technology aside, yeah, we have this cool tech stack that allows us to, uh, to do attribution. When and if that becomes table stakes, and admittedly, I don't think there's much defensible there. Like this is all we've done is take what has existed in digital marketing attribution and brought it to the physical world. What retains value when everyone's using the technology? And so embedded in that narrative is you look at the four largest public billboard companies, JC, Deco, Lamar, Clear Channel. They're all REITs, uh, real estate investment trusts, which I think is a very interesting reality. It shows you a pretty clear statement that they view themselves as real estate companies. And I think largely that's the direction we have taken as well. So in the same way that a Times Square billboard is not the same in terms of value as one that's in the suburbs of Jersey or Long Island or Westchester, so is true of our ad format and truck side. And um, to that end, it's a pretty fragmented space truck operations, but we have found a way to aggregate it in a quick and meaningful way to allow us to go, okay, you have this batch of 10,000 trucks in the tri-state area, run them through a simulation using your technology to figure out which ones are the most performant from an impressions perspective or you know eyeballs perspective, and only choose to work with the top quartile of those of that supply side because that is where, you know, that's what's going to retain value in 10 years is, is having control and ownership of um, those most performing assets. And I think one thing you realize very quickly is there is an incredible distribution curve of performance at the asset level. So, you know, the median truck, and these are made up numbers, let's say it's getting 200,000 views, 30 or 200,000 views per, let's say like 90 days. Well, the top quartile is getting 2 million per 90 days. So if you have that sort of distribution curve and you're selling on a CPM basis, 
it's the incentives are aligned to want to go find the most performing inventory. And I think having done so successfully fills in the rest of the narrative. Like the only way we can go toe to toe with a company that is competing with us in that, that example you're calling out, they undercut us on price by a good margin. And we said, okay, well, here's the deal. We'll do a side-by-side campaign. We will use the same tech stack. We'll measure both at the same exact time. All variables held equal, except the quality, you know, they can pick their assets. We'll pick ours. And like, it's, it's not even close. Like we're justifying our price and more than that in that side-by-side example. And so I think you have to have having a product that works as table stakes if you're going to enter a crowded space, but you, you got to make sure that that narrative is only possible because I think we did our homework to make sure that we a had confidence in our product and could really stand behind it against anyone else in the market and then do a lot of the, okay, show don't tell type of selling, which is the most fun to do, right? Cause you put in all that work. Now you get to really flex it and lean in on it to drive the business forward. So the seed round that you guys uh, just recently announced, it was led by Brand Foundry. I have a ton of respect for them. They've built some of my favorite brands. Could you talk about your process of, of picking them as a partner and what they bring to the table and why you're so excited to be working with them? Yeah, absolutely. So Brian Spaley, who joined our board, Andrew Mitchell, you know the, the two partners behind that incredible fund. They have an incredible track record, you know, Warby Parker, Harry's, Allbirds, Sweetgreen, some, some of our favorite brands, but they are decidedly CPG investors and, and we don't squarely fit that mold. And I think we're probably their first investment outside of, you know, that category. So when we were looking for investors, I think there were a few different routes we could have taken. And there's obviously the supply side, there's the out of home giants in, in the space, there's agencies. There's just like, you know, passive capital, which was definitely put in front of us at one point. And then there's people on the demand side. And I think part of the reason they were excited about this is while it didn't fit the mold of their average investment, it was something that both parties felt they could uniquely provide value for. And so having built such a incredible track record with these CPG brands, like you know, they are on the board or very dialed in with the people that we want to get in front of. And I shared with you, like, it's, I don't, I don't know if we'll ever figure out our smooth, sexy one-liner for this company, but it's easy to hear truckside advertising and be like, uh, like, what is this, the 70s? And so the value of a warm introduction or someone that other people respect being the one that is writing an introduction or getting you on someone's radar, it changes that narrative fundamentally. It's like, okay, if, if Brian Spade is behind this, there's clearly something that I'm missing. If, if I think this is truckside advertising, let me go out and, and listen to this pitch. And it's in those situations where we get the full breadth of our technology and, and why we're in the market and what we've been able to do for our, that allowed us to be so successful. So I think that is what guided us towards... Um, that type of investor in terms of why brand foundry specifically in, you know, I'm sure people fundraising have a lot of empathy for this statement, but what we were running into initially was a lot of people like trying to tell us how to run our business or, or trying to weigh in, in spaces that like no disrespect, but 
I'm positive. I know more about you. I know more about my product than you do. And I appreciate what is probably coming from a good place and wanting to be helpful, but I didn't get on this call with you to, to be talked at about how you think this business should grow and that you think we should be a SaaS company. Like, you know, I've done the research or teams done the research to say that that's not a space that I think will win in, in the long term, And I just don't have a lot of appetite for that. So, you know, you got to trust your gut. Hopefully you have a bullshit, a good bullshit radar when you're in this space and out raising money. And I would just say, trust it. You know, these were, <laughs> when I was doing due diligence on them, someone that invested, someone that they invested in was like, listen, it's two Midwest guys with daughters. It's not like, you know, um, your typical VC from Sand Hill Road or, you know, New York or something like that. Um, they care deeply. They, you know, gave us a lot of good signal that they, they believed in the team. They trusted us and they weren't going to be, you know, they'll be as involved as we needed to them, them to be and not overreact or, or get too in the weeds as we try to make decisions that, you know, maybe sometimes on the surface feel incorrect, but are optimizing for long-term success. And that trust is really important at the end of the day. Um, and they talk a lot about that. And I think, um, you know, they trust us, we trust them. And so far it's been a great partnership. Couldn't speak more highly of those guys. That's really cool. Kind of walking to the exits here. So I mentioned earlier about, about how we met. I'm not going to say the name of the guy that put together the investment memo because everything's <laughs> private and I haven't talked to him about, about this. But if you're listening, sure. I think that you're awesome. Because uh, what he does is he, he, he shares his investment, a lot of his investment process, and he writes up these memos that he'll just send to, to people in his network. I think it's a great service that he's you know, doing to, to, to me as, as an investor in that network. I think he's a, doing a great service to the portfolio companies. And I think he's like serving himself and multiple fronts. So like one, he's, he's forcing himself to put his thesis onto paper. If you can't, right, I love that. You can't write it, you don't really understand it. That's why I talk instead of write. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. And, um, but then the other thing is like by helping with capital formation, I mean, customers and capital, like that's what companies need. And so him being able to step, to step on that scale, I think is really cool. When he sent me the, uh, the intro and uh, had your name on it, Tom Shea, I was like, son of a bitch. I wonder if he's related to Katie Shea because I had just met your sister a couple weeks earlier and she's a go-to-market ninja. And I thought, if this is, if this is Katie's little brother, there's no way that his go-to-market is going to suck. As I've gotten, <laughs> as I've gotten to know uh, both of you guys a little bit better, like I'm a big Shea family. I'd love to kind of end on, tell me about like, who, who is the Shea family? I think that you guys are a family of entrepreneurs, workers, hustlers. I don't think that you just, you know, showed up uh, on this earth as a, as a 22, 23 year old hungry to make a dent in the world. I think, I think you got there. And so I, I just love to hear a little bit about, about your family background. Cause I think it's, I think it's a really cool one. Yeah. And, and a quick tip of the hat for the person we can't list, but I agree that the counterpoint to investors that want to tell you how to run their business are the ones that, you know, restore faith in humanity. And those are the connectors. And I think you touched on why he, that person is such a great asset and, and why there's, there's a lot of great in the industry as well. But yeah, to your point, I mean, our, our origin story is, is far too classic. 
So we met um, obviously through, through through that mutual contact, but I think you had decided to join the rounds before we actually put it together that uh, Katie Shea was my sister. So <laughs> over indexing on the Shays, which you lo- you know we love to see and love that to share investors. But yeah, so you know talking about the Shea family, very entrepreneurial family, not only in the nuclear family but the extended family. So we, our parents, uh, Tom and Jerry, which is true, that's not made up, both, I think, entrepreneurs at their core. So our father, and interestingly, it dovetails well into the founding story of Agile Media Group. Uh, he, is, he owns the longest continuously running um, signs and awnings company. So like, you know, building signs, awnings, etc. And so from a very young age, we were exposed to what it what goes into running a business, you know, going to the shop and helping out. And to his credit, he, you know, he sort of like molded us in that image. I, I remember one of my earliest memories was <laughs> this is so funny actually. Uh, there's a red light on Long Island um, that it just is red for way too long. And he took me and my friend out, and we had ice cold water bottles on a. Um, you know, very hot day. I think it was on a long summer out to the beach. And we had a sign that says raising money for Disney World. And we were not going to Disney World. But he did show us like what it takes to sort of drop the ego and just commit to the sale and, you know, move forward without fear. And I think there's something beautiful about that. You can see from a very early age, he was trying to expose us and get us to have that confidence and, and, you know, show us that we can do anything that we want. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of things you learn from just being around those people. You look at our extended family, obviously Katie Shea is my oldest sister and I have three sisters in total, but from a pretty young age, like she was, I don't know, I was like in early high school and she's launching city slips, which ends up getting acquired when she was in her dorm room at NYU. And so you know, I am, you're, everyone is a function of their like 10 close people. And when you have a family, not only a nuclear family that's really in this world, and, you know, our uncles also own small businesses. It's sort of hard to not always have that in the back of your head. So my first foray into entrepreneurship was in high school. I started a company called Trendworthy Tees. It was when Twitter was sort of coming onto the scene and I aggregated the trending social data to inform t-shirt designs. And then I sold them online. And um, that is how I was able to buy my first car, my first little foray into entrepreneurship and taxes and all of the miserable components that you need to have uh, to, to set yourself up for success later in life. But I think getting a taste of that, that success at such a young age, it's once you work for yourself and once you get that taste, I think it's really hard to go back. And so when I did enter corporate America, I, I have so much respect for where I started. It taught me everything about what a business needs to do from a processes perspective to have success at scale, you know, 6,000 plus person organization. But there was a part of me that was only able to maintain my sanity thing on side projects that look a lot like Agile Media Group. So... The story makes sense, I think, especially, you know, Katie, like she was influencing me to go study Chinese from an early age and what that did for setting myself up for success in my career and applications and stuff like that. I feel very fortunate to have someone like that so close to me 
And even the foundation of this business, like you talked about her being a go-to-market ninja, her network is so deep that when we needed those early customers and we were like giving this product away, she goes, yeah, well, I have all these portfolio companies who would love free advertising. And then you start a flywheel. And obviously, we had to do our job to deliver and maintain trust to keep that flywheel active. But there's something to be said for um, someone helping you get your start. And I think one thing I'd be remiss without saying here is just acknowledging how good of a hand I felt like I got dealt in life here, which I think it's important to acknowledge that in sort of everything you do and, you know, make sure that you're paying it forward and giving back to the community to the extent that you're able, because, you know, (laughs) yeah, we worked hard to get here, but there's so much goddamn luck embedded in all of this stuff like that. You look at trajectory and how we got to here and how I was really set up in a way where it almost felt disrespectful to not try to capitalize on the opportunity that's before me. And I think as long as you don't lose sight on that, lose sight of that, um, hopefully you find a way if you're successful to be um, bringing everyone else, everyone else up alongside you. Man, that's awesome. I, um, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, um, it made me it reminded me that tomorrow I'm going to be speaking with our mutual fun friend uh, Julian Posada and Lift Up Enterprises. So uh, we'll be we'll be diving into a conversation of like, yeah, what it looks like when you don't get dealt the uh, the ace's hand, and um, how do you uh, how, how how do you how do you solve problems where the wind is not at your back is is a really really fascinating conversation that I'm looking forward to having, hopefully in the context of, of this podcast project. Man, Tom, thank you so much for, for, for coming on and doing this. I am just very excited about, about what you and the team are building. I can't wait until I see a, uh, an agile truck rolling down the streets in Kansas City. You'll have to let me know when that happens, when you guys, when you guys have it. Coming soon. Yep. Running here. That'll be super cool, man. Where, where can people find you? Like, what are you working on with Agile that you would say, hey, if you've listened to this interview, reach out to me on this. Like, I'd love for people that have heard what you're building, find that it's interesting from a customer perspective or from a talent perspective. Would love to kind of hear, yeah, how could people get in touch with you? Yeah, I'd say um, LinkedIn's probably a pretty good one. Just Tom Shea, Agile Media Group. I think actually, and this is maybe a fun way to close, something that I didn't realize that I think everyone who's in B2B probably needs to be on is Twitter. And the reason I say that is every person you're going to try to contact through cold emails or cold LinkedIn's, both of those more professional channels have gotten sort of overwhelmed with sales pitches. And what people don't realize is these very online founders or business executives are super active on Twitter, but have like a couple hundred followers and get like, you know, three likes on their posts or like two comments. And you know, if you're engaging with them, you can actually, you know, you're 33% of those comments. Like they're probably not missing that. So I'm on Twitter. I think it is Tisha 14. I think that's a space that, oh, sorry, Tisha 0314. It's quickly becoming my favorite medium just because how accessible some of these people who are typically unaccessible have become. And um, there are little communities in Twitter that I think make sense for wherever you are. There's VC Twitter, there's nurse Twitter, there's CPG Twitter. So I know some weird stuff's happening with Twitter right now, 
but that's a shameless plug that that is quickly becoming my favorite uh, channel for interacting with folks. So engage with me there. That's super cool, man. The internet is a really cool thing. The fractals of the metaverse keep unfolding. All right, man. Well, hey, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your yeah, day, this man. Is fun. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an Unlimited Partners production. The show is edited and produced by Andrew Thomas, and our music was composed by Nick Samaska. Thanks again, and we'll see you guys next week.